Hey, so how are you? Good morning to you all. I'm uh, thrilled to be here, and I want to start by telling you that there is, uh, picture this, there is a six-year-old running loose in the White House. Okay, and every best attempt at those in charge, security officials and people that are officially in charge of keeping a ruckus from happening, uh, are being foiled by a six-year-old. He is running through breezeways and corridors, yucking it up, yelling at people, just having apparently the time of his life, right? And it's kind of disruptive, but it's a little lighthearted. And every single time that the security officials and those in charge try to corral this young six-year-old boy, he, he manages to escape and elude their grasp and then run down a new hallway or corridor. And it's kind of fun-spirited until suddenly he turns the corner and starts making a beeline to the office of the President of the United States of America. And security officials know that uh, this is troubling because there's, an, there's a, an important meeting going on in the office with the President and his staff, and, and this cannot be interrupted. So they ratchet up their pace and their pulse quickens as they, as they race after the young six-year-old boy. But they, alas, they don't make it, and he makes it all the way to the office, announcing himself with a big, ta-da! Right? The whole jazz hands bit, the whole deal. The meeting suddenly comes to a quick close. Like, the conversation stops immediately. Everyone lurches up. The president stands quickly. And the young boy runs straight at the commander-in-chief. When suddenly, he is just scooped up into the arms of the president himself with laughter and smiles. The six-year-old boy was named Tad Lincoln. He was son of then-president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. Relationship matters, right? I mean, right? I mean, it's kind of on who you know. Because like, if the rest of us try that, <laughs> it probably doesn't end, you know, so cute, right? <laughs> it doesn't have such a cute ending. We're, we're jeopardizing our own existence if we do that. I wonder if you've ever known and noticed anyone who seems to have this type of relationship with God. Like literally, they seem, whatever it is, you've experienced people, and, and rather than wait in line like the rest of us have to, they just sort of seem to get straight through. They have a straight connection. Maybe, you know, maybe, uh, you know, they just, they have some secret inroad to God. Maybe they have the secret bat phone line that just gets them access. Or maybe it is that when they pray, there's just something so powerful Something goes off when they pray. Maybe for you this was like a grandmother, maybe a mother, and maybe they spent a great deal of time at this type of prayer praying for you. That would be way to your benefit if that were true. Or, or maybe, maybe you've heard someone else pray so powerfully and something just goes off in such a way that you think, man, my prayers, my prayers are kind of lame compared to that. Or, or like you think, you know, like, Something just happens in that prayer that I don't, I don't, I'm not feeling that kind of connection. Or maybe you're here today and you're like, Rob, none of that's my experience. I, 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 I don't even, I'm not even sure why I'm here. I just, a friend, I'm going through some stuff, a friend brought me, well, you know, and I'm not even sure I believe in all this and I don't pray. And well, if you don't, welcome. Uh, now would not be a bad time to start. Like maybe you would pray right now for a very short message. Who knows? God's got a miracles. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I'm not really feeling that. So buckle up. You know, it might be a couldn't hurt, though. So for the past, past few weeks, we've been talking about why and how to pray, but today what I want to talk about distinctly is I want to dig a little deeper into 
what makes prayer so powerful? Like, what is it? And the answer really, the first answer for us is right there in Tad Lincoln. The six-year-old boy was able to do what none of us could do simply because of his relationship to authority. I mean, you get it? Tad Lincoln is, Tad is Abraham Lincoln's son. He knows it. He knows, therefore he knows he can gain access to the president. And he's assured that he's going to get the president's attention. So what does that have to do with prayer? Well, well, here you go. The Bible records that Jesus possessed and demonstrated like an unusual and rare, powerful spiritual authority. That, uh, and in a quick glance of the New Testament would yield numerous uh, examples of what this looks like. In fact, here's one from the book of Mark. It reads this way. That evening at sundown, they brought to him, to Jesus, all who were sick and possessed with demons. And the whole city, literally a whole entire city, is gathered around the door of where Jesus is. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, Jesus demonstrated a mastery over biological, natural, and spiritual forces. I mean, he could heal people's bodies. He could remove evil spirits from, from, from with, that have taken possession within people. He showed authority over weather patterns. One time he, he calmed a storm. I mean, over physics. One time he walked on water. There was something inherently powerful about Jesus. But here's the most interesting thing, at least for me, about Jesus, is that he does not limit that power to himself. He actually shares that power. After a period of time, it actually goes down this way. Jesus calls together his closest followers, and when he did that, he conferred that same authority that he had his authority, he conferred that authority onto them. He granted them that same authority that was his. He shared it with them. The Gospels record it, and here's a few examples. Here's one that says, Then Jesus summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. And it works. And Jesus later widens the circle to 70 people. And they go and do similar things, and they come back and they're celebrating. They're like, oh my gosh, Jesus, unbelievable. And this is how it's recorded in Luke 10. It worked. Demons submitted to us. And Jesus says, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and, and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you. Hmm. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what Jesus is saying is, yes, I have absolutely given you authority over these spiritual forces. I, I have, uh, but, but seriously, don't be too impressed with yourselves. Like, be careful there. It's, not your, it's your connection to authority that's actually the thing that's worth celebrating. The thing that's worth celebrating is that you know me. That, that's the thing that's worth celebrating. Everything else is kind of a byproduct. And, and Jesus, the one the scriptures say is God, what he has entered into with humanity is a power-sharing relationship, which is kind of unbelievable if you think about it. Because it's not, it's not generally our experience with power. I think you would probably agree. Most most times we understand power is the great corrupter, right? And power, people who have power hoard power, right? They hoard it for themselves and, and they try to get more of it. But Jesus is literally power sharing. He's saying, I have the ultimate authority and I am giving it to you. I'm inviting you into it. John Burke, our senior pastor, kind of frames it this way and I think it's pretty helpful. He says, imagine you walked into the street right now. Like, let's say you walked right out of here in your clothes just the way you are right now and you walked out into that street, 
uh, William Cannon, and you just stood in the middle of the road and threw up your hand, right? And you could do it with sass or flair or whatever. But what would happen? Well, I would imagine what would happen is probably the cars and our trucks that are out there would probably swerve and try to avoid you out of the fact that they don't want on their conscience hitting another human being. But are they going to stop and wait for your next command? Probably not. I mean, I wouldn't chance it, right? But now let's say that you're a police officer and you've gone through the entire uh, regime of becoming a police officer and you are in full gear, full Full, full, full outfit, right, with badge and everything and a whistle, and you walk out in the same road with Ken, and what happens? Everybody stops. Everybody, and they wait, say, what, what do you say we do next? Well, what's the difference? They have authority. Authority has been conferred upon them. They have been granted an authority. Uh, I mean, is it because they simply threw their hand in the air? No, it's because of their relationship to authority. The truck driver driving on the street knows that he could run them over, but he probably isn't going to do that. Because if he, he, if he wants, you know, he's, he's actually violating the authority of the city government if he does that, and he probably doesn't want to face the dire consequences that come with that sort of thing. And so what, ha- what happens here is that Jesus invites his followers into the same kind of power-sharing relationship, just like he did with his first disciples. There is this power that comes with knowing Jesus and being connected to him through prayer. There are healings and spiritual freedom and all sorts of things, but I want you to notice in Luke 20 again, it said the focus is not on the fireworks. Jesus said it's not about the fireworks. It's on the relationship. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you know me. Celebrate that you are connected to God. The power is simply a byproduct. And in fact, you see this throughout the entire remainder of the New Testament. You can even look back in the Old Testament to to people like Moses or Elijah. And what you'll see is that the power of someone's prayer actually grows in correlation with their deepening relationship with God. The more they come to understand and and know the heart of God, God's character, his, his, his motives, his mission, his plans, the more their prayers seem to almost become radioactive, if you will. They seem to really take off. Something seems to happen. And God dispensed this power freely, and he continues to dispense it freely to those who are more and more in sync with who he is, with his will. And it actually makes sense. Because, I mean, think about it. In your workplace or at your house, who do you want or who would you give more increasing authority or power to? The very people who know enough about you and what you desire to execute that plan. And now this kind of context actually really helps us because it helps us understand probably one of the most misunderstood passages in the scriptures, and especially the Gospels as it pertains to Jesus. See, in the book of John, it's written this way. This is Jesus speaking. He says, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these. Wow. Because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. Wow. All right, so first of all, we've got to backtrack and and cover a couple things. Have you ever heard someone pray, and at the end of the prayer, you hear it right here at Gateway. Have you ever heard someone pray, and at the very end of their prayer, they say this. They say, and in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, right? In Jesus' name. So this passage is actually what created that concept. It's, It's kind of an oversimplified application 
but it, um, it's, it really comes from a desire. Like, if I pray in the name of Jesus, uh, then, then maybe, and sometimes we get duped into thinking, if I pray in the name of Jesus, then, then I'm sure it pops on God's radar, right? Like, he can't hear us talking until we do that, right? Like, 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 like we're around talking, and God's like, oh, I wish they would, uh, dear Heavenly Father, oh, wait, wait, I, I'm online, okay? You know, please grant me all these things. Hmm, gosh, I don't know if I can grant them. When will I know when you're finished? In Jesus' name. Oh, here it goes. Here's the end. I'm in. We're out. Okay, good. We're clear. Like, it's, not, it's not really how it works. It's not just prayer etiquette so that God knows you're finished. What Jesus is actually saying is that when, when, you, when you pray in my name, if you ask in my name, what it means is that what we we're just talking about. If you're asking for the things that, are, that sync up into my will and do the things I desire. I am with you in it. And I will move in powerful ways. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the, the term power of attorney. You probably have at least heard it. It's a legal relationship that enables you to legally manage someone else's affairs should they be unable to do that for themselves. With power of attorney, you can handle their financial transactions. You can take care of their business affairs. In some cases, you can even make life-altering medical decisions and even decide the fate of someone's children should you have power of attorney. Power of attorney allows you to act on someone else's behalf using their resources and representing their interests. In other words, you get to operate what? In their name. But what, 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 makes, what would make someone wise in choosing someone that they might offer power of attorney to should something happen to them? Well, I would think it's someone who would need to know you really, really well. Really know you on a different level than most people know you. and Know you way better than just casually. Would you say that's true? Someone, someone who can be trusted with the power of, of making decisions in your name. And I would say it's the same thing for Jesus. And Jesus says there is a power-sharing relationship that he invites all of his followers into. But he won't just empower anything you ask for in his name. You need to know that, Right? First of all, does it represent his interest? Does it reflect his character, his purpose? Is it something that he would want to be involved with? I mean, this opens up a whole host of things that you can file into a category called never pray this. Right? Let's have, you want to have a little fun with that? <laughs> never pray this. I, I've got a couple right here. How about this? Never pray this. God, would you please kill my boss in the name of Jesus? Right? No. That's not how that works. I think God would be like, no, that's not really my style. See the Ten Commandments. Okay? There's your reference point. How many of this? You can file this under never pray this. Right? God, please bless the affair that I'm having. Please bless the affair that I'm having with someone who is not my spouse. Please just bless that relationship and may it go well. In the name of Jesus. I think, again, God's like, uh, no. Yeah, not really a fan of adultery. Again, see the Ten Commandments. They've been there from the beginning. I'm still serious about that. Right? Here's another one. Maybe you would say, like, God, would you please, God, just make everything in life go my way. May everything, would you just make it so everything in my life goes the way I want it to go, even if it's at the expense of other people? So that I can be blissfully happy, God, in the name of Jesus, right? I think God would say, no, no, here again, no. 
And you getting everything you want or everything you think you want is not the key to happiness in any way, shape, or form. Right? I, I think a lot of this stuff gets covered if you, if you understand the scriptures and you see the character of God. But we're invited to be connected. And there's a lot that Jesus does want to be involved in, you should know. And he's eager for you to be a part of it through his power-sharing relationship that, is connect, that we connect with through prayer. In fact, it's written this way in the Gospel of John. I love this passage. If, again, words of Jesus, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. Like if, if you abide in me. Jesus is still very interested in and able of defeating many things, including uh, evil and the evil spiritual forces that lurk and they're actively at work today, even in our culture. Now listen, I know the resistance here. I know the pushback in our 21st century science-driven culture. I wouldn't fault you at all for wondering, and I have myself wondered, are you totally serious? Are you actually serious about this evil spirits thing? But here's what you should know. Historically, overwhelmingly, recognition of the spiritual world is universal amongst every single culture. And by the way, it's making a strong, strong comeback in ours. In fact, surveys and data show that more and more Americans recognize themselves as spiritual, or at very least spiritual beings, which seems on surface like that would be an inherently good thing for people who lead churches. But I will tell you, there's a caveat that comes with this, this idea of being spiritual. It's that not, not all spiritual entities are created equally. You should know. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who's one of the first followers of Jesus, who goes around planting churches all over the Roman Empire, he writes these words to a, a church that's been started in Ephesus, a faith community in Ephesus, and it's found in the book of Ephesians. At the end, and it reads this way, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities, authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places, that they even have access to go into the heavenly places. Paul writes, there are invisible realities that are at play among us at all times, and we cannot detect them with scientific instruments that probe the physical realm, but they exert influence over each and every one of our lives nonetheless. Um, it's kind of an interesting flip. For many, many years, science, the science community was urging people to acknowledge the existence of all sorts of invisible things, like bacteria, and viruses that could not be detected with the tools of the day. And science was trying to say, at least because you can't see them does not make them, they're not real. And they were right. And I would say it's the exact same thing spiritually. I, I, I would say, as a leader in the church, I would say, <laughs> we're in the same position of urging people to acknowledge invisible realities that maybe technology cannot detect, but are no less real and have very much an influence over your life. For example, just try to do anything good in this world. Watch how everything seems to conspire against you. So how do these unseen evil spirits work in our world? Well, not to lean too heavily on legal metaphors today, but um, primarily they operate as squatters. Are you, familiar, are you familiar with squatters' rights? Because I am. Just so you know. Some of you know <laughs> the story of my family. Uh, squatters' rights are basically these antiquated laws and a lot of books from kind of more of a Wild West kind of day where if someone just took possession of something, if they just were able to remove somebody from the premises, take possession, 
uh, that they have, would have legal rights, even if they have not paid or there's no kind of legal contract. Uh, they, they're there now, and now they have legal rights to the place. Some of you know our story. I won't be exhaustive in it, but uh, one time my family lived in Las, Las Vegas where we helped start a church. We were moved to Chicago. We were trying to sell a home in Vegas that we had to leave vacant to sell upon our move. Squatters cut open the lockbox, took the key, illegally took possession, and were protected by squatters' rights laws. It took us 15 months to get them evicted. They did so much damage, we lost our home. It was horrific. Terribly painful experience. But I am happy to say that 16 days ago, we moved into a new house that we purchased. We are back, baby. We finally came back from, from that. That's the redemption story in and of itself, if you don't believe in redemption. So uh, when the Bible speaks of someone being possessed, here's what I want you to think about in terms of evil spirits. I want you to think less about the exorcist and think more about squatters. Because... These evil beings have been allowed access for one reason or another into a person's life. Uh, it, it could be through some allowance involving ignorance on the person's part. Like, I didn't realize the danger of this when I got involved. It could be anything but some kind of presence has taken, taken residency. It could be toleration of the person. It could be just open and welcome. I don't know. There's all kinds of reasons. Uh, but a lot of times people aren't even aware of it, and there's this kind of malicious force that takes hold, takes root in a person's life that keeps them doing things that even confound them. Like, I don't understand why this keeps tripping me up. Right? And they, and they become wrapped up, defined by, characterized by this sort of evil presence. All because they're never, these, this evil presence is never confronted and kicked out. Now, what Paul says in the, in the passage in Ephesians is that the presence of these types of invisible beings have authority. They have, are spiritual authorities, meaning they have power, to be sure. So what's it going to take to get rid of them? Well, it takes a stronger power. It takes an encounter with a stronger power to rid a person's life of these type of things. This is what is happening consistently through Jesus' ministry, and then what he confers onto and grants to his disciples as a power. It happened throughout the New Testament, so much so that in the book of Acts, which, by the way, records the ongoing experiences of Jesus' first followers, there is a recognized link between Jesus and the removal of evil things and evil, evil spirits. In fact, in Acts 19, there is a great story, it's so great, of some people who saw the Apostle Paul exercise authority over evil spirits, but when they tried, it didn't go so well. They were trying to play religion. And I love that the Bible confronts, say, if you're just interested in playing religion, God is not with you. And eventually we'll be found out. But man, if you're serious about relationship, it's a whole different thing. Listen to this story, I, I love it. It's in Acts 19, it says, A group of Jews was traveling from town to town, casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Seven sons of Siva, who was a leading priest, were doing this. But one time they, when they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? That is so good. <laughs> and then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, leapt on them and overpowered them and attacked them in such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. That is awesome. <laughs> yes, I'm the pastor lacking sensitivity, but I love it. I love it. I love that they're like, they're trying to play religion. And God's like, I'm having none of it. I won't be there to protect you from that. So, so much so that this spirit that has the authority that's evil is like, hey man, I know Jesus, and if you were with him, I'd be out of here. And I know the one Paul talks about, but who do you think you are? 
I mean, who do you think you are? And so you see clearly how the relationship to authority matters. I mean, they used the words in Jesus' name, but with no relationship with Jesus himself to actually back it up, if you used our traffic cop metaphor from earlier, they're out there with a phony badge. And the evil spirit knows it, and he calls them on it. Like, no, you have no authority here. You have no power. You contrast that with the experience that's found just three chapters earlier in, the, in, in Acts 16, when the same apostle Paul is being followed around town and hounded by a young girl who apparently is possessed by a spirit that gives her abilities to tell people's fortunes. And, and this goes on until it really just annoys Paul, and it's written this way. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned around and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and instantly left her. This is the conferred authority. This is the granted authority of Jesus, exercised through a man who syncs up with the will of Jesus, even if he's slightly annoyed, right? Even if Because it rings a little bit of like, don't make me come back there. Like, right? But this is available to you, too. It's totally available to you. Some of you have had experiences with dark forces. I've talked to you. I've, I mean, here in Austin, I hear stories all the time of people who have these incredibly dark experiences that, that causes them great fear. Sometimes it's in dreams, and sometimes it's just in life, and sometimes it's just something that seems that is, that is coming to their existence, and it's frightening. And these powerful spiritual beings, they may not know your name, but they do know the name of Jesus. And they do respond to his authority, I promise you. And our role through prayer is to exercise the authority we've been given in Christ and command these dark forces to just simply leave in his name. They'll respond. If you know Jesus and, you, and you're called, they will respond to his authority. If you're in a relationship with them, you need not be harassed or dominated by them anymore. So Jesus gives this kind of transfer of authority through prayer to his disciples, but he also not only authority over evil and the, and, and, and the spiritual evil that exists in the world, but he also gives them, he also transfers and confers over to them the authority over healing. Now, sometimes it's mental, emotional, spiritual healing, very much, but it's also, you should know, there's an element of physical healing. Now, again, I know the resistance to the idea, and I've had it. Because you may have seen a televangelist or something that's just like, all that business and the whole thing there, and you're like, what's up with all that? And I don't, I don't know either, to be quite frank with you. But, and, and maybe for you, you've, you've seen some of those things, and it's hokey, and it's staged, and all those things that you've seen, and that pushes you past Keep Austin Weird into that's just very, very disturbing, <laughs> right? And you wonder, man, what, what, what's going on with this? And may, maybe you've actually, but maybe, maybe you're here and you've prayed for healing for yourself or for someone you deeply, deeply care about, someone you deeply love, and healing did not come, and you're like, what was up with that? You got nothing in response. I, I, I've experienced the same thing. I will, I will be honest and tell you, this is loaded territory, and I don't have time to do it justice with the remaining time that we have together this morning, but I do want to at least point out a couple of quick things about healing prayer that really need to be said. And the first thing is this, is healing something that we should actually ask for? It's a good question, but Jesus, because Jesus has clearly done it in the Bible, and those who immediately follow him did, did some of the same things. And to answer that, I would simply say, you have to point back to Jesus, and what is the heart of Jesus? 
which according to the Bible, by the way, does not change. It's, it's, we're told that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That his heart has not changed. And so in Luke 5, a leper approaches him with infectious skin disease that made him what's, what's considered unclean. Uh, couldn't touch anyone, couldn't be around others, just renounced from the community, and had to announce and pronounce himself unclean and couldn't be with others. And it says this in Luke, it says, When the man saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Lord, he said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly, the leprosy disappeared. It would seem to me that the heart of Jesus is willing to heal. There is compassion in that touch and in that, that, that spoken word, I am willing. And that's the heart of Jesus. But why don't we see more of it? Well, it is complicated, and apparently it's complicated not just for the followers of Jesus, but even for Jesus himself. You should know that. Because there, there's verses in Matthew like 9, Matthew 9, 35 that say this. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, preaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. That verse lives right alongside another verse found in Mark that says, and he could do no good deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them, which is, I think, a good deed of power. But basically saying, compared to normal, there was something that was limiting Jesus. And then it says, and he was amazed at their unbelief. That even Jesus was, you know, in his reliance on the Father and the Spirit was, was, had some kind of mystery here of like, I can't go further with this. And healing happens, I know this when we pray, but it doesn't always happen. Jesus' heart is to heal, but he simply doesn't always. Perhaps our unbelief is the problem. Perhaps it's our unbelief that's in the way. Maybe it's that there's a greater purpose at work that we just can't understand. I would argue it's a that a lot of times. That there's something greater at work that we simply don't have access to. But I've got to be frank, that's not always a satisfying answer, is it? Not always. But I'm not here to dispel the mystery of that. That's for God, not for me. But here's the corresponding truth that I think you really need to grab onto and glean from the pages of Scripture. It's true, Jesus might not heal if you ask for healing. He might not heal you or the person you love. But he probably won't if you don't ask. I mean, he may not, but he's probably not going to get involved if no one's lobbying. There's something powerful about that. We tend to live our lives like, well, God's just going to do what God's going to do. Mm -mm. There is some holy reliance on this relationship that we get to be invited into under his authority. So why the prayer? Why the ask? Because you're developing that deeper sense of relationship. You're developing some sense of trust. That request is saying, I trust you. And even if it doesn't go my way, I still trust you. There is something powerful about that. And we trust Jesus' heart, and we trust his authority enough to request healing. It strengthens our connection to him. And it pulls us further, further in sync to him and to his will, his will the will of God. Doesn't mean we always get what we ask for. You should know the disciples often didn't. It's not like, it's not like they were just going everywhere shooting off a God gun, just getting whatever they wanted. That's not how it worked. But just like we don't rejoice that demons submit, it means we don't lose heart when healing doesn't happen the way we think because it's not our authority in the first place. It's the authority of Jesus. And we should rejoice instead that our names are written in heaven. 
But you should know we are invited to come, and we are invited to ask boldly for healing. In the book of James, it is written, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. You may be healed. Like, maybe. <laughs> the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. And that means like physical healing. You pray for any spiritual, emotional, Jesus is in, in the rescue business. You, you need to know that. But here's the thing about powerful prayers of, of physical healing. They've been the experience of the church for some 2,000 years, and the followers of Jesus have given witness to 2,000 years of history that this sort of thing happens. The authority of Jesus has been exercised over all kinds of different maladies and diseases and illnesses and injuries. But it's not just something in history, right? It's a personal experience, too. These powerful prayers have been the experience of this church. In fact, um, if you were here last July, around the 4th of July, then maybe you too, as I was, were witness to one of the most powerful answered prayers for healing. And not only the 20-year history of Gateway, but I've maybe ever seen in my life, I've seen a few, but I mean, this one's powerful. When people petition Jesus, there is, and there's no record of why something should have happened. So watch this and be reminded that God really does hear our prayers. I believe the text went out at like in between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. It was as uh, Julie was putting him in an ambulance, basically, I think. Well, it was night. We were celebrating the 4th of July with Jeremy's family, whole extended family. And we were at his in-law's lake house, which has a very long dock. And we were all looking up. And then we heard a really big splash. And it took us a minute to figure out that it was Jeremy. The news just cut to the core, and it seemed like the more news that we got, the more insurmountable it seemed. I would be lying if I said I truly believed that he would be healed. I thought for sure that we were going to lose a friend. My reaction was like complete numbness, just like, just hard to believe. Jeremy's one of the best men I know. I haven't known him my whole life, but I feel like I have. He's very involved, thoughtful, intentional. He spends a lot of time with his kids. He's, he's a great father. He, uh, he knows how to let others grow into their full potential. It was a hot evening. We were about to go back in, and I just thought I would take one more jump into the lake. And because all the lights were off, uh, I'm forgetting or not thinking about the fact that the lake is quite a bit lower than it normally is. And so as I dove straight down uh, into the water, I instantly hear quite a bit of crushing uh, and came up out of the water um, knowing that I was, I had injured myself badly. Uh, I was told early on that it was a severe neck break and that was also something called internal decapitation where his head was no longer attached. If I recall it was less than one percent chance of survival. We knew enough to know that my 30-minute flight from where I was to Parkland Hospital um, the odds were high that I would I could die would die in that flight and so we definitely had a, a long moment where he felt like he was saying goodbye to me. Told her she'd been a great wife and uh, 
fantastic mother and that um, God was good. We were going to be fine. She was going to be fine. Um, and our kids would be okay um, because we know that God is good and I would see her again. Uh, I gave her permission to marry somebody else so she could find somebody as great as me in our marriage. But um, but we we prayed and they sent me on, put me on the helicopter. Um, because it was the middle of the night, all I could do was text. I put a Facebook message for our staff so they would know. We just needed people to pray. We really couldn't have visitors. There was not, really nothing to be done. We just needed our people praying. The first reaction was to like, oh, we have got to pray. The next step was, um, I can pray on my own, but I know a lot of people that love Jesus and um, that I believe would just get on their knees and start praying. And I just broadcasted it. Text messages, but I also went to, to Facebook and just put out a cry for help. Lots of people responded uh, that they're praying and that they, they joined in. Uh, I remember the day that I prayed and led North Campus in prayer. Walking out of the auditorium, a woman walked up to me. I still don't know who she is, but she said, Rob, Jeremy will be healed in full. And I remember just thinking, man, I want to believe that, but my mind just won't let me believe that there's something that I don't want to be fooled in that. Coming out of surgery and um, kind of kicking and flailing around and really disoriented. But then as I woke, um, realized that I'm alive and I'm, I, have, I have everything. My hands, my feet, I could, um, I could move everything. And I, and I heard God say, I'm not done with you. And I'm inviting you into a deeper intimacy with me. And there's more power and strength to do the rest of what I have for you to do. Jeremy Apel is walking proof that prayer works. It's just amazing to know there's a community of people calling on, on, on God to, to step in and provide the help we were screaming for. The scriptures say the prayers of righteous people and we are made righteous in Christ, that they are powerful and they, they, they move things. I'm so grateful for all of those who didn't even know me, but said yes to praying for me. So thank you for your prayers and the role that you've played in the story that is that I that I continue to walk out. Gateway, thank you for your prayers. I think you participated in saving Jeremy's life. Wow, right? Um. So you might be like, hey, you're the one on the video saying uh, you were struggled to believe that that would happen, and I was, uh, candidly. Jeremy is a very dear friend. And the recovering cynic in me was struggling. If I'm being candid, literally, God made a mockery of my faith last year. Just how little faith I actually sometimes have. But I tell you, 
I stand before you to give witness to the fact that there is power in the name of Jesus. Unbelievable power. Jeremy shouldn't have even survived coming out of that water. And yet he is here with us today. He's still a fully functioning member of our staff, a vital member of our staff with an incredibly strong intellect, a great friend, one of the, my favorite people in the world to debate with. I love to debate with Jeremy. And I know he's here because people prayed in the name of Jesus. And maybe for you that's a foreign idea, but there are many of us that would give witness to the fact that Jesus has power. So maybe today, for the first time, you might pray in his name. You, you might come to God right now and say, God, in the name of Jesus, I want to know you. And through Jesus, I thank you that he, he has delivered your gift of mercy to humanity in his death and resurrection, and I want to receive that. And maybe you're here today and you know Jesus, but you're like, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I, I, I know him and I'm connected to that power, but I forfeited a lot. And you just say, I just, God, I want to just reconnect with you in a way that this, I want to know that intimacy that Jeremy even spoke of. And I want to, I want to be a part of the power that only you have. And God, so I pray that of every person in this room, that every person walk out of here at least more curious about what it is you're up to in the world. And the power that you have because of what Jesus accomplished and the work of your spirit to give witness to, to Jesus' power. And God, that when we call out in his name, there is a power in the beautiful, beautiful name of Jesus, the powerful name that makes things go off. And I pray it all in that amazing name. 